Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. The lead singer and keyboardist for Devo, Mark Mothersbaugh, is an avant-garde new wave pioneer. Although critics often classified Devo as a joke band, the Akron, Ohio art punk's ethos was created in response to a very serious event, the 1970 massacre at their college, Kent State. Following the shooting, the band took on the name Devo, short for what they felt was organized society's de-evolution. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Devo helped lay the groundwork for DIY anti-establishment bands by releasing bizarre and left-of-center music and conceptual films that helped usher in the music video revolution. In addition to his work with Devo, Mark Mothersbaugh also had a long and successful career scoring for film and TV. His credits include Pee-wee's Playhouse, the Rugrats TV show and movies, and he scored several classic Wes Anderson-directed films, including The Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore. On today's episode, I talked to Mark Mothersbaugh about how he developed his quirky sensibility as one of five kids growing up in a chaotic household that included exotic animals. Mark also tells a story about the time Richard Branson suggested that Johnny Rotten join Devo right after the Sex Pistols had broken up. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's my conversation with Mark Mothersbaugh. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm really good. Thanks for doing this. Broken Record. That's right. Was that like a radio drop for us? Sure. <laughs> you are listening to Broken Record. You know what? I used to, um, when I was 17 or 18... I used to take my sister's BG records 
and also my brother's uh, one of his Pink Floyd records, so I apologize to both of them now. But I took and I damaged the disc on purpose so that, I mean, there was no, I didn't have a synthesizer or anything in these days. These are like, there was a, a piano and a little portable organ and a guitar in the room where I was doing this in the basement. But it would go, there's a time, there's a time, there's a time, there's a time. And I would jam with that. And I didn't have enough technology that I've recorded any of them, which I really regret. But, oh, man. but I used to like I'd break my records on pur- my sister's records on purpose. How did you discover that as a means of making music? Nobody was respectful of, of the discs in our house. Everybody treated them, you know, because there were kids of all age. So little kids would go, ah, and they'd take my record that I liked and they'd scratch it or by accident. And then I'd go to play it and then I'd go, I go, ah, Amy. And uh, it made me interested in these other kinds of rhythms and sounds and deconstruction of music when I was a kid. And it was innocent. I didn't have any school connection to it. I had, you know, nobody at school talked about that stuff. I just experimenting on my own, actually. Before you just sort of discovered that, and and sort of that kind of naturally led you into deconstruction of music and these weird quirky kind of rhythms and things. Was your taste more conventional? Were you also into the early Bee Gees records? Or? Well, you know, um, I hated music when I was a kid because I had to take piano lessons when I was seven. And I'd be sitting there on the piano playing the stupid thing that I had to learn, like Autumn Leaves, you know, which, you know, like, Roger Miller singing it or something, but I, I was playing Ah, the Autumn Leaves. And I'd look out the window and my friends were like, ha, ha, ha. And they're out there playing and they're, they're having fun. And I'm like, hey, little jerks. And that started when I was seven and I hated it. And then five years later, after I'd been doing it for five years, uh, my parents to, we had five kids. And the only way to keep it from total chaos at dinner time is my dad had this little black and white portable television and he'd set it on the end of the um, the kitchen table or whatever we were eating and we'd all like just go boom and we'd just watch TV and uh, dinner time was after dad got home from work so it would be like um, uh, you know we'd be watching Ed Sullivan you know so it'd be like Topo Gigio you know the little puppet mouse and stuff like that and you know it was it was just something to watch that kept us from like hitting each other or like putting our fingers in each other's food. And then, Mom, Bob put his finger in my food, you know, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And uh, but one day he goes, all right. And from Liverpool, the Beatles. And um, I saw the Beatles. Do I want to hold your hand? And I lost my mind. I just went, yeah. what is that? That's incredible. Because to me. I, I didn't listen to the radio. Radio in Akron at that time was like a, a lot of country western and then and then novelty music, you know. So there'd be like, um, she wore an itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow. Po-. So that's the kind. So that's what pop music was, was like to me. Was like novelty songs like that and Witch Doctor and Purple People Eater and stuff like that. But then when I saw the Beatles, I went, "That's what I've been." tortured my whole life learning music for so I could do that. I knew when I was 12 I was going to be in a band. And that was before I got interested in like writing stuff and then I wasn't sure 
what that meant or what I was doing when I was trying to do it. I started write, trying to write music pretty early on, but I never tried to write something like a Beatles song or anything. I didn't really, you know, the, the truth of the matter was I didn't really, I thought a lot of their lyrics were sappy and silly, but I was 12, so I was still growing up. I thought the, I thought the Rolling Stones had great lyrics. I thought they had the best lyrics. I thought Satisfaction was like this cool hipster beatnik proclamation and yeah, and and yeah. the music the instruments you know were like in, were like genius i i just i think um they never talk about it which is but i think keith richards and mick jagger were both incredible lyricists and songwriters so yeah it's funny i was thinking about satisfaction it's funny brought up i mean i guess it's not strange you all got devo also you know, did a great cover of Satisfaction. But I was thinking about Satisfaction the other day because one of my streaming services that I watch TV on somehow switched over to the version, the lower grade version with commercials. And so I was sitting through a movie and it kept popping. I was sitting through a Charles Bronson movie from the 80s, some random mm. Charles Bronson movie. And it kept going to commercials. And I realized about halfway through the movie, I I, I, I kind of miss commercials. And then I was thinking about how satisfaction <laughs> was sort of this screed against consumerism and people selling to you and advertisers. But I've, I've gotten to the point in 2023 where I, I kind of miss any level of communal yeah. like you know yeah and it gives thing. you a relief from uh from whatever the mediocre movie is you're watching <laughs> it was the most random charles bronson that's kind of funny he's hunting down yeah. a, a like a mormon serial killer or something crazy yeah there was, you go yeah it was it was wild to what degree did movies ever become an, of equal interest to you to music early on but it wasn't just movies it was commercials it was uh, random music you'd hear anywhere, just sounds that you heard out in out in the world. When I went to public school in Akron, there wasn't really a very robust music or or art or anything cultural in in the schools because basically they were teaching kids how to be farmers uh, mm. at my high school. There was like a ninety five kids, you know, graduating class, and they their parents were farmers. And my dad was like a uh, we had like a green acres farm. It was like wasn't really a farm. It was like this little tiny place. It had a had a barn and and it had a house and it had like five acres. And but he was a salesman and he but he always wanted to to you know to live out in the country. And he so we were kind of so we moved out to to you know like a suburb outside of Akron. And um, it was a total different world there. You know the people inside Akron were all you know they were gonna end up working on the uh, the conveyor belt line, you know, they were going to, the assembly line at, at tires, yeah. you know, because we had yeah. like, we were the tire capital of the world when I was in high school still. And then uh. it smelled when you got near downtown, but you knew that was the smell of everybody's paycheck, you know, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. whether you were actually on the, on the factory line or if you were just working at the hot Hamburg store right out, you know, or the hot dog stand, you know, just outside of Goodyear, you know, where people came to eat on the way out of work, you know, it's like, uh, it was all rubber did every, yeah. was, was everything. Did you spend much time? Cause I guess, you know, your, your Akron, the closest cities would have been like Columbus, Cincinnati, of course, still within Ohio, Cleveland, Cleveland. Yeah. We were a Cleveland wannabe. We wished we could have been, it was like, <laughs> Oh, they have a cooler art scene in Cleveland. They have 
bands come to play there. You know, you had to go up to Cleveland to go see David Bowie. He didn't come down to Akron. Did you get any shows in Akron when you were? Yeah, growing up? occasionally. Um, I I had to miss it for I don't remember what reason, but my my younger brothers saw Cream at the Akron Civic Theater, and I remember my little brother who was uh, in junior high and was a drummer. He charged the stage after the show was over, and before uh, Ginger Baker had left, he said Ginger Baker had his drumsticks taped to his hands with, because uh, because otherwise he would have lost them because he was so, you know, probably high, you know. But he he ran up on stage and he and he said, "Good drumming, man!" And uh, Ginger Baker just went, "Thanks," you know, like that. And that was, and he was so excited that he exchanged a, a communication with uh, Ginger Baker. And he did become a drummer, my brother, Jim. Man. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ginger Baker is an exciting guy, you know, even if he's nodding off. It's <laughs> yeah, still probably, like... <laughs> probably would have been dangerous if, if he would have ended up, you know, backstage or something with him. But you know, yeah. who knows? That's a bummer. You missed that. I'm sure that must have been incredible. There were a lot of, well, shows, you know, because if nothing else, they were on their way to Chicago or they were, you yeah. know, Detroit was like the shit, though. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's like Detroit had amazing bands that came from them, you know, and, and and that's where you had to go if you wanted to see like Iggy Pop or... I mean, seeing Iggy in Detroit, but I mean, before he left Detroit, that must have been wild. You know where I saw him? Actually, I saw him in Cleveland. I saw him in Cleveland at the Cleveland Auditorium. He opened up for um, David Bowie uh, for his Spiders oh. to Mars show. And uh, I was like, Wow, look at that guy. Because he was like, he didn't have a shirt and he would like throw himself off the stage and people would get out of the way and he'd just smash on the floor and he'd just bounce up and keep singing and he'd be bloody by the end of, of his set. And I was like, that's pretty hardcore. That was amazing. What was that? You know? And then, uh, then uh, Bowie came out and uh, that was such an incredible show. The Spider Samars show was so amazing. And and like uh, Mick Ronson had like a blonde page boy, pouty, you know, lipstick. And he had like on silk blue pants that like, you know, went just below the knee with white knee socks that came up, you know, like, like he had like white pantyhose on and he had like lifted shoes, you know, big shoes with a big buckle. And he just looked so badass, like a, out of a Renaissance painting. And uh, they were so amazing. And, and I remember at one point during one of his solos, Bowie gets, you know, he's, he's dressed like a lizard uh, alien and, and he gets down in front of Mick. And I remember being in the audience going, oh, gosh, I wonder if David knows that looks like he's blowing uh, Mick Ronson. I, he should, someone should tell him not to do that because it, it looks like he's blowing him. I, you know, I, I, I know he's just worshiping his guitar playing, but, it, but the way he's doing it, it looks like he's blowing him. <laughs> I just remember thinking that when I was a, a little kid. <laughs> oh man, to be to be naive out of Akron. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in Akron, if anybody, if there was anybody there that was gay, it got beat out of them. You know, it was oh, like oh, a, I mean, that's the kind of it, it was. It was a rough place to be, even you know, anywhere deviant of right down the middle. It was yeah. And so Debo was so far off to you know out of out of it that we were just we just felt like space aliens, you know, like observing yeah. the planet the whole time. I mean, that show that you saw with Bowie and Iggy and Ron, I mean, that must have been maybe just before Devo started. You guys might have even been been playing. That was together. probably we might have already been um, jamming because um, I, I don't remember what year it was. Uh, now, now you're right. I don't know the exact year that 
that that album came but out. But it would have been right around, though, right? Right around the same time. And, yeah. you know, Bowie was somebody we, we really respected as an artist. You know, it's like there were people that we kept our eye on. And it was like uh, like Eno, for instance, you know. But even like uh, much more eccentric things like uh, uh, Captain Beefheart. I was a really big fan of his. I think the first Captain Beefheart record is probably the only Captain Beefheart record that I have been able to wrap my mind around still. I mean, it only because it only got more and more bizarre from from there, you know? That was kind of a conventional record in hindsight, yeah. Safe as Milk. And, yeah, for me, it was you know. Trout Mask Replica was the one oh, that yeah. I thought was his uh, masterpiece. Matter of fact, there's a song on it called The Blimp, and um, the line in it goes, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. And anyhow, so when we did a our remake of um, Secret Agent Man and played a solo for it, I finished the solo at the beginning of the song. It has a an homage to that. It goes. I put it in the solo, and nobody has ever come up to me and say, "Hey, you you referenced." Uh, a Captain Beefheart song in Secret Age Man. <laughs> it was too obscure for everybody in the world, I guess. There's too much information on, on Trout Mask Replica to synthesize it and, and be able to recognize it elsewhere, I think. You know, it's, it's just too, yeah, it's too yeah, dense. I, it's yeah, too dense. It's, it's a pretty amazing, yeah, it's pretty dense, yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, that was, that was my early influences. And just, but also at the same time of that, uh, when I was a little kid, 12 and going up, I, it, it was the British invasion for me. Uh, I loved all that stuff. And I remember going, walking past the drugstore on the way home from school because they, they had a, a magazine called Tiger Beat. And I never bought one because I didn't have a quarter or whatever it was. But I would go in and I'd just look at them to see pictures of these. And I remember being really upset once because it said um, Dave Clark 5 versus the Beatles. You know, like they, they they like had these like their concepts of battle of the bands and you know, they would then go through and say, Well, here's what's good about them and here's what and here's what's not as good, but it's better by them and I remember in my little twelve or thirteen year old brain I'm going like well, that's not fair. There's five of them in the Dave Clark Five. There's only four Beatles. I just remember being like, that's my takeaway when I left the drugstore that day. I was like really concerned about the Beatles, you know, being outnumbered. <laughs> I thought I was the fifth Beatle when I was a little kid. Uh, I would go down in the basement. It's the only way I could get away from like five kids. We we had monkeys, flying squirrels, dogs, cats, every kind of animal. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, we had all sorts of animals. My dad was kind of odd in that way, in a great way. But uh, I could go down in the basement. I could turn my Beatle record up loud, and I would pretend I was the fifth Beatle, and I'd and in my mind I'd be watching the Beatles at Shea Stadium on stage, and I'd be off stage. And then um, one of them would look over, like maybe uh, John would look over and he'd go, come on. And so I'd come out, and he'd they'd be playing in the middle of a song, and he'd lift his guitar away from his body. So this is this is creepy for a 12-year-old kid to be having this fantasy. But, but, you know, I would get in between him and his guitar, and then I'd take over playing, and then he would slip his guitar guitar strap off of his neck out around mine and I'd be this little 12 year old kid playing with the Beatles and they had their outfits I, I couldn't be that I wasn't allowed to have that in my fantasy I, I just was like in my school clothes and I'm playing and then I'd keep an eye on him and John would like be smoking a cigarette and then he'd put it out and he'd go okay and then he'd come back out and then 
we'd do that thing again and he'd get in between me and he'd take over plane and, and I'd d duck out. And then, you know, maybe the next, maybe next it would be Ringo would look over. He'd, he'd, he'd have to pee or something, you know, and I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd like come out and I'd be sitting there in between him and the, and, and the drums. Then, then next thing you know, I'm playing and he's gone. He's going to the, the restroom or something or getting a, a glass of milk or whatever. Ringo had to do in the middle of a song, but it was but it was always like in the middle of a song too. That was the amazing part of it. It was like never, like they would finish a song and then I'd come out and do it. It was like, it was better than that. That's a way cooler way of doing it though. Just slipping in, the beat never stops. The, the guitar you never you know, just picking right up where one of them left off. That's the that's the smooth way of doing it. That was my British invasion fantasy from twelve or thirteen somewhere in there. Do you still appreciate the British Invasion, that music? Is it oh, still... yeah. I mean, you know, it's like um, I got kids and a wife that are into Sonos and every all the different, you know, Spotify's and everything. And I just, ha I just work on music all the time. So I, I don't – I rarely go back and listen to music. But a couple weeks ago, we were setting Sonos system up in our dining room or something. And my wife was getting frustrated and she left. And so I was, like, figuring it out. And as I was figuring it out, somehow I started tripping into all these 60s uh, era Brit songs. And I started listening to them again. And I was going like, oh, the kinks, that guitar sound. Nobody's ever gotten that that guitar sound from uh, Girl, you know, You Really Got, you really me, got or, me, or yeah. All the Day or All the Night. I was like, how, did he, play, how did he get those? Yeah, they got these sounds that nobody else ever really totally got and and i started listening to all these other songs and and i spent a couple hours listening to to a british invasion again a couple weeks ago maybe that's why i'm talking about it now because it because I, I i stumbled on it again and then it was it and i found it equally wonderful we have to pause for a quick break and then we'll come back with more of my conversation with mark mothersbaugh apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch Subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from Mark Mothersbaugh. So many people have a similar story of, you know, the Beatles sort of opening their mind to music and what it can be. And I feel like the British invasion had sort of became by default the gold standard of music and it's the thing that was always referenced to but if you actually go back and listen to it i think there's things are worth going back to like the guitar sound from the kinks like to have that distortion sound that's just not it's not like overdriven it's not overpowered and everything but it's still just it's it's still fucking awesome it still is this great raw sound like you know um okay so years later uh neil young was kind of curious about devo and so we ended up in one of his films. But before that, I'd worked with a with a, a, a director that directed the film, Human Highway, it was called. And uh, I'd written mu- off-Broadway music, 1979. I'd written this music that he, he made. He did an off-Broadway Ionesco play. I don't know. He's a Dada writer from the, I don't know what year that was, 40s or 50s or Ionesco, but but Russ Tamblin did a one-man play and, and Dean Stockwell directed it and he needed music, so I wrote music for him. And then when he worked on the Neil Young movie, they asked Devo to be in their film and we were. And then when Neil was scoring it, Dean Stockwell gave Neil all this music I'd written for him for this uh, off-Broadway play. And so half of the score in Human Highway is electronic stuff I did and the other half is uh, stuff that Neil did. And Neil was, and you can tell the difference because Neil wrote stuff that sounded a little more like um, Gary Newman. And oh, the stuff, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it did. It was interesting. And then the stuff I wrote, it sounds a little more like uh, uh, like eight years earlier than Pee Wee's Playhouse when I started scoring Pee Wee's Playhouse. It sounded more like it was going to, like what Pee Wee's Playhouse became. You guys and Neil doing Hey, Hey, My, My is mind-blowing oh uh, the footage is good i you know it's, it's like when we, insane when, it's the fucking know, coolest thing ever <laughs> when we did the film we were kind of like we were kind of like assholes you know and we were like it was like the same week or one week after the sex pistols had broke up who were my favorite band at the time oh, yeah, and yeah. uh and they we hung out the night that the the sex pistols broke up they came over to this house where devo was staying because we were playing at Mabu Higar's, a little punk club, the night after they played their last show. And, uh, yeah, I remember, I didn't know they were breaking up then. Maybe they didn't even. Were you friends with them? Like, so, or did no. they just happen to come over that we night? We just, they knew that we liked them, and they liked us. Uh, as a matter of fact, a really crazy thing, about a year or so later, we signed with uh, Warner Brothers in the U.S. and Richard Branson for Europe, uh, because I thought he was cool because he, he had signed the, the Sex Pistols, I thought. And he was our age. We were all 25, yeah. you know, and in 77 then, you know, um, we knew we were going to sign with uh, Branson. And um, we had, like, one of the worst snowstorms in Akron ever. And at this point, nobody in Devo has an apartment anymore because we don't have jobs. We only 
we're like now we're just driving to New York to play at Max's Kansas City or CBGB's, or we would get in our Econoline line and we drive out to the West Coast and we play L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, and that was it. That was all you know. There was nowhere in between for us to play except a, a club in Cleveland that we shared with uh, Dead Boys and um, Pirubu. So it's like. Um, Bob Casale and I are sleeping in this girl's living living room. He's kind of in this room that's like a off of the living room, like it's like a like a greenhouse room or something, because it had windows all around. But it was cold in there, and uh, I remember the morning that that we got a call from Richard Branson. The window had blown open, and Bob Casale was on this couch out in that that room, and. He was covered with snow underneath, and he was, you know, trying to huddle underneath a blanket. And I was in a, a sofa that was like, you know, 20 feet away, and I'm looking at him, and I go, oh, my God. And um, Branson called and said, hey, how would you like to come down to Jamaica? I go, you know, that sounds pretty good. What would, he goes, yeah, just come on down for the fun of it. So, Did you have passports? Yes, we had, because we had already recorded the album. Branson became interested in us. Because while we were in Germany recording our first album, we had let Stiff Records put out three singles, yeah. and they all charted. They all went number one in a different country. It was crazy. So like, cool. um, like Uncontrollable Urge was number one in Yugoslavia at the same time Mongoloid was number one in France at the same time Satisfaction was in the top ten in England, and, and Social Fools was in the top ten in Germany. and. Wow. Uh, I loved it. Jocko Homo was in the top 20 in Scotland. And I just thought, <laughs> Jocko Homo, that's a perfect country for it. To, for Scotland's a perfect country for Jocko Homo. Anyhow, so he flew to, you know, to Germany where we were recording and talked us into signing with him and, and uh, created this whole big problem because Warner Brothers didn't want to give us up for Europe. And it, it doesn't matter now. But yeah, um, yeah. So Bob Casale and I fly down to Jamaica. And you know we get off the plane, and it's it's a it's kind of rough, you know, the road between the airport and and Kingston. There's like a, a I remember a dead Great Dane that was in rigor mortis on the side of the road. Nobody had bothered to move it. It was just in a rigor mortis pose with its legs up. And uh, we got to this hotel, and Richard Branson and a bunch of guys, Simon and other people that, you know, South Africans that he'd started Virgin with were all sitting on the sofa and they were rolling these gigantic joints, which, uh, you know, I'd never seen that much marijuana before, you know, it's yeah. like in Akron. Akron, it was always like about three-fourths oregano anyhow by the time it got <laughs> it got to you. So he rolled these joints and they're passing them around. Everybody's taking hits off of these giant joints. And um, I, I never was a smoker, but I gave it a try. I took a couple puffs. And then Bob Casale was a smoker, so he's just doing big hits. And then they'd come back to us and we were smoking this stuff. And, uh, you know, we're talking about nothing. And um, finally Richard goes, hey, the Sex Pistols broke up. And, you know, now I'm starting to get high and I'm like, getting talking about yeah we hung out with them the night that they broke up you know i said and nancy and 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 uh steve jones everybody was over at this house where we were in the uh the apartment where they they made the magazine search and destroy this really cool punk magazine in san francisco if you don't know it you should check it out and uh we were sleeping on piles of search and destroy magazines because uh, they let us stay there for free so, 
because we didn't make enough playing a, a show at a punk club to to get a hotel room. So uh, we're we're talking. He goes, we go. Yeah, it's really a shame they broke up. They were so great. They were our favorite band. And I'm like, at this point, I'm just like blabbing away. And he goes, Well, I'll tell you why you're here. I've got uh, reporters, the Melody Maker, Sounds, and New Music Express, the three English papers. They're all in the hotel right now. And Johnny Rotten is here. Johnny Rotten wants to join Devo. If you want, we can go down to the beach right now and make an announcement uh, and sign something on the beach. And Johnny Rotten can join Devo. And I remember at that point, all of a sudden, like, I hit this break and I'm like, and I'm like, oh, and I'm looking at Richard and he's like staring intently at me with this crazed look on his face. Because even to him, it must have sounded kind of crazy in a way to say that, you know, and he's smiling really wide. And I'm like, oh, my God, his teeth are protruding like a brain eating ape. And I just remember, like, I started stuttering and sputtering, and Bob's, like, totally smashed. He doesn't even have anything to say about anything. He's just so high. He's like, whatever. I don't know what we're talking about. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, we love, we love the band, and we, I love Johnny Rotten. He's so amazing. But, but you know, Devo, we're something, you know, we're different, and we're, we have our own thing, and, and we, but we love them, and we think that's, and that's, that's actually really, uh, you know, complimentary that he would even think that or that you guys think that's a good idea I, but you know I, we, we've worked so hard on what we do and we have something that we really know what it is and then they're all looking at me like oh they thought they were going to do this big crazy stunt you know it was going to be like like the stunts that they'd done with you know like um, Sue Catwoman and uh, Vivian Westwood and Malcolm and these people they always had these outrageous ideas on how to how to like freak everybody out or get <laughs> yeah. their attention you know, I was not up for that at all. And I just remember thinking, <laughs> oh, shit, are we, does that mean we don't have any place to stay now? Because I don't have any money. I, I can't even afford a ticket back. Well, what did happen? Did you, did you just crash that? Like, they were cool? Like, what? Okay, fine. Well, just... we hung out for a week. And they took us to these places. They took us to this place called the Hedonist Club. And I'd never been to anything. I'd never been anywhere out of Ohio, out of Ohio except for Germany. And then we played three shows in England on the way back to the US. But that's all all we'd ever done. Nobody had ever been to anything like on a like we when we went to the Hedness Club, that was for people with money. You know, that was more yeah. middle class and upper class people. There weren't any blue collar workers there except the ones that were working. Was Johnny Rotten around for all of that still? Or had no, he, he, no. Le he left. Once uh, one, he felt I, I think it was like once we didn't say, hey, let's get together, it's like he was like Fucking Richard, what a jackass, yeah, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's like shit. he couldn't he couldn't believe that Richard did that, I think. What was the vibe in the in the apartment of, of Search and Destroy the night that they broke up? Was it weird? Was it cool? I mean, what, what It was, was like there was all sorts of people in there, all hipsters, you know, it was all yeah. the hipsters from San Francisco. Yeah, there was every kind of craziness that you could think of was 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 happening in that. And, and luckily I had this one room with newspapers and it was small enough I could just go in there and lay on a stack of newspapers. And finally at about four or five in the morning, I, I got a few hours sleep and before we had to play later the next night. And, Man. And Sid and Nancy were there. And that must have been a Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, Sid, Sid was like, he'd walk up to a table or a countertop that had like a beer bottle or a glass with liquid in it, you know, like half a glass of beer or something or... 
and he'd just slowly start moving it on purpose so that everybody could see that he was slowly, with his finger, going like this, pushing it closer to the edge of the table. And then it would fall and break. And then he'd look around to see if anybody was going to get excited about it. And nobody cared, you know, nobody cared that he was doing it. And he just kind of was like bummed out. It was, I guess that was his idea of a, a of a icebreaker or something, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like, so. like, let's start talking now or something. But yeah, it was interesting. Wow, man. You were managed also by Neil's manager, Elliot Roberts. And, I yeah, mean, after what was, that. How was that? that? It was kind of wild, you know. It was he, he had stories, you know, about the rainbow, which was right down the street from his office, which is what the room I'm in right now is like not that far away from where we're talking about because I'm mm. on uh, Sunset Strip. I've been here for about 30 years. I mean, I just assumed in my mind, because Nickelodeon's, I didn't know if that was like when you started scoring Rugrats. I, don't, I mean, I don't know why that would be the reason you moved there, but it just occurred to me. Uh, yeah, I was in my house. I had a, a bedroom in my house that was my scoring room. Uh, it was an extra bedroom. And um, I started doing more and more music. And then I did a couple, I did a, my first Wes Anderson movie in that house. And, and I was doing commercials. And why I ended up, moving out of the house, because I liked working in the house. But one day I was doing a Pepsi commercial and the, the chili peppers were playing for me. And I only had them for like three hours. And one of my neighbors had called the police and the police came over and I go, please, let me just do one more take. I need one more take. Let me just do one more pass. And they wouldn't let me. So I had to like use an older take and it, it worked out in the end. But it was like, I thought, well, that's you know, now I know everybody hates me. So I started, so I started looking for a new place to move to. And um, while I was doing that, I just, the neighbors that live closest to me, I, I bought them bouquets of flower once a week. I bought them each a, a bouquet and, you know, to all, like about half a dozen houses. And then, and then finally I got out of there after about four or five months because I, I found this building that I'm sitting in right now, 30 years ago. Amazing. How did you end up in L.A. To, to begin with? How did L.A. sort of become your home base? Well, we did this film. Chuck Statler directed it. It was the first Devo film. It had two songs on it, um, Jocko Homo and uh, Secret Agent Man. And the reason he made the film, you know, he thought, well, what if this band isn't together next year? What if they don't stay together? Because Jerry had his concerns about, well, this, I don't know. Mark likes this really weird shit, you know. <laughs> so there was something like that going on. So he said, well, I'm going to make a film. So we did. And then, but what do you do with a film in 1975? Nothing. So, but he entered it in the um, Ann Arbor Film Festival and it won first place for short film. So that put it on a, a, a traveling tour before 76 was out. It was on a tour of um, cities and... Um, Somebody who had just signed Tubes saw that film with us in it, and they went, oh, wait a minute. Is this another Tubes? And so he, he gave us $2,000 to drive out there in our Econoline van, and he put us up for a month, and we rehearsed, and we did a showcase. And um, we decided, you know, since we were into film, that maybe – I mean, I thought we were going to go to New York because to me, I felt really a kindred spirit with New York. 
But I assume, we, I assume if you're an art student and you know you're into sort of experimental thing, you're just going to go to New York and skip LA. Yeah. Like, why? Well, you know? what what happened was is just just the film industry was out here, and we thought, well, maybe they'd do a film with us, you know, because we had ideas for films, and Jerry wanted to direct films. He really wanted that, and um, so that's how we ended up here. It was and it was cheaper. It was cheaper, you know. It'd be interesting to view an alternate timeline where. You did we stayed, New York instead We went of, to New York, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or one where we stayed in Akron and we were just like, there wasn't like a, a receptive atmosphere in, in Ohio. Let me put it that way. It's mm-hmm. like like uh, there were very few places that we could perform and um, uh, nobody wanted to hear original music in Akron at that time. They, they wanted they, – they came to clubs to hear their favorites. And so what we even started doing is we would like – call clubs up and ask them if they need a band. They go, well, what do you guys do? And we'd lie and we'd say we were a cover band. And then we'd come out and we'd be in like janitor outfits and then we'd play like, all right, here's another one by Foghat. It's called Uncontrollable Urge. And then, <laughs> you know, after the first set, you know, oftentimes, more often than not, we never got to finish our second set or third set in the, at, a, at a place. They would tell us we had to leave or they would um, pay us to leave. They'd say, well, here's your money now. You can have your $50. You got, and we go, no, but we've got more, two more hours worth of music for you. And they go, that's okay. <laughs> that was enough. It's cooler to be doing that in, a, in, an, in an environment like that, though, than in an environment where everyone is just trying to out weird one another. You know, it's, I like that. You know, that you guys were <laughs> truly the just complete oddballs of the area, you know? Clearly wasn't to be popular. You guys weren't doing it uh, to be... <laughs> There wasn't much of a music scene back then, and there was no camaraderie. Uh, I was in a before I was in Devo. Uh, I was in a band with Chrissy Hine. It wasn't our band, so we were in it for like we. Pl- I think we played one or two shows at the most, and then it split up. As, but uh, other than that, I experimented with a lot of different musicians, and I kept looking for the sound that I wanted to do. And then uh, I had already known Jerry from school. We had collaborated on visual art projects before, and then we started talking about music together. And then he and this friend of his, who was like this guy, Bob Lewis, to me, Bob Lewis was like, um, I felt like it was Peabody and Sherman when we were together because he seemed like a human encyclopedia. I like that guy. But uh, Jerry and Bob found this book called The Beginning Was the End, How Man Came Into Being Through Cannibalism. And uh, it was this crazy book that was, basically preaching de-evolution and uh, saying that humans were the unnatural species. And it was kind of like how we already felt because we'd been through Kent State uh, where where we thought, yeah, we shouldn't be over there. I can't think of one Vietnamese person I want to kill, so why are we doing this? Let's stop it, you know, and and um, then, you know, you find out when the government gets irritated with you enough, they just kill you. Yeah. So we had this kind of, uh, we were kind of pissed off about humans on planet Earth and, and our felt like we weren't like a, a natural species at all, that we were the one species at odds with nature in general, you know, and we were destroying the planet. You know, it's like it wasn't like we wanted to sit there and beat a book and, you know, say that. And it's like we wanted that to be part of our aesthetic and that people would know that that, that was our, our, you know, our thoughts about things that Humans were unnatural and humans needed to change. Is that where the 
them performing with masks and just the different looks came from? Was that a, a way to sort of... I'll tell you what happened with masks is is uh, none of us had any money. You know, we all had crappy jobs. I worked in a, an apartment building as a maintenance man. Uh, it was a hundred-year-old building, so it's like somebody's drain would be stopped up and I'd take off the U-joint down underneath the, the, you know, the sink. My brother and Jerry delivered meat for some meat company and then Jerry had a job as a janitorial supply place for a while which was actually really beneficial because he found uh, in one of the catalogs these hazardous waste material outfits that we went, oh, my God, that's perfect for us. You know, they yeah. were like they were like our anti-superhero outfit, you know, uh, these yellow suits. And, and once we put a, a, an elastic waistband around the waist and cinched it in, it turned us into who we were, which looked like, looked like we could be cleaning up, you know, nuclear slop or we could be, you know, like uh, – picking through body parts in a, at a plane crash, you know? Yeah. And uh, they were inexpensive. They were like four bucks or something at the time to buy one, one of these plastic suits. And um, one of the masks I found at, at this um, novelty shop in Canton, Ohio, which is close to Akron, was this rubber baby face mask. And so I became Boogie Boy, who we, we referred to him as the infantile spirit of de-evolution. And... Um, that stuck with us, and Boogie Boy ended up coming out on, and still does. He still comes out on stage uh, every night. And your your dad used to come out as part of this stuff yeah. too, right? He's General Boy. <laughs> oh yeah, he was totally obsessed with it. He had this, I think he had this hidden desire to be a artist. You know, I think he really wanted to be creative in some way. He played clarinet, and it even got a little overboard uh, at our first. When we on our first tour, he wanted to go on tour with us. He wanted to manage the band, and I'm like, you know, mid twenties. I'm thinking, my dad go on tour with the. That's the last thing I want. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. thinking, yeah, I don't want my dad on tour with the band. That sounds terrible. And it's too bad we didn't. He had a much better business acumen than any of us. There'll be more of my interview with Mark Mothersbaugh after one last quick break. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says, we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at NewStockTrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is NewStockTrend.com. That's NewStockTrend.com. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity 
giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Mark Mothersbaugh. Is it true you guys first did a Jocko Homo, performed Jocko Homo opening for Sunrock? Yeah, we opened for Sun Ra. That was amazing. That was like 75, I think. It was in Cleveland. And I remember we, we'd never been around a band that had a record dealer that was as prestigious as Sun Ra. Yeah. And so I remember like before we went on stage, I was listening to these guys talk that were in the band, you know. And they're like saying, yeah, that's Sun Ra. He's, he's like getting a big head. You know, he's got such a big head. And he's like, it's not cool, man. It's like... You know, he took a taxi here from the hotel. Then he says, yeah, the rest, of, the rest of the band all had to take the RTD from downtown to wherever this uh, auditorium was we were playing at. And I'm like, wow, that's what it's going to be like when I get, when our band gets a record deal. We're, we're going to take the RTD to get to the, to get to the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember thinking that. I thought, I thought, oh, I thought it was all like. David Bowie, I thought it was all glamorous. Glam. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but Sun Ra was so amazing because he played his keyboard like it wasn't like he was like playing notes or anything. Yeah. He was playing clusters of sounds. And I was but so make, impressed. Making it fit, though, I'd imagine. Oh, my God. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it was more percussive than it was melody. The songs were just incredible. And, but when he played like that, I started doing it. Boogie Boy started copying him. I started, I started playing my synthesizer like this. There were songs that I could do that on. Yeah, it was interesting. We got in a, we got in, in a fight with the with the audience that night. They were they were DJs from WMMS, I think it was, and yeah, you know, we were dressed like janitors, and then they were all dressed like Dracula and vampires and mummies and Frankenstein, and we we look like the total opposite of like Halloween. <laughs> And uh, they're all doing nitrous oxide and um, margaritas, and they're getting really <laughs> drunk and aggressive. And, and at one point, after about three or four songs in, like, my woman subhuman, da -da 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 -da. she can't walk. She can't talk. She just sits by a sign that says, I love you. And... It was driving them crazy. They hated the, our music. And at one point, some DJ jumped up on stage. Like, You're going to let these people continue to prostitute music like this? And they started throwing paper cups with uh, uh, margaritas in it at us. And um, 
Yeah, we ended up getting in uh, fist fights with uh, with with um, uh, with DJs. <laughs> it was crazy. And then Sun Ra came out. I mean, if you can be too abstract for Sun Ra, <laughs> you know, instead of Sun Ra, I know. It's like, what the I hell know. is happening? <laughs> like these guys are out to lunch. Let's get Sun Ra on. You know, like what? <laughs> I found an audio cassette that our sound man had put in the, in in a tape recorder and he recorded that show and it's really good it's really good wow. you hear it you hear Has it, it been put out? no we, we oh. yeah maybe we should but it's but it it, it it devolves into the fighting and and uh just the the insane chaos of our set and everything oh you guys should put that out that'd be amazing <laughs> but we we were kind of like uh we were kind of lightning rods for hostility we loved it we would like we think if we're pissing these people off, we're doing something right. Yeah, and yeah. That was it was kind of that kind of approach. But I I remember Jocko Homo. I would just keep going up to people and going, "Are we not men? You know, we are. Diva. Are we not men?" Until they were like sick of it. It was like <laughs> if it took twenty minutes, I would just provoke people until they would want to fight with us. And did did you find like humor in this stuff? Like, did you were you a fan of comedy or humor or anything like that? Oh yeah, we took and we took our our humor seriously. Okay. And we were serious about our humor, you know. That's why I was attracted to people like uh, Subgenius, because when they first came out, uh, the Church of the Subgenius, their early pamphlets, they didn't have enough stuff out to let you know if they were serious or not. And I was just hoping they were serious. And and so <laughs> it was back in the days where like um, we, we would like read a National Enquirer and we'd read a poem by John Hinckley Jr., uh, for for um, Jody Foster and they'd say he's a says here he's in the Maryland Bethesda Hospital and Jerry and I would call up uh, Maryland Bethesda Hospital and say um, uh, we're in the band Devo could we talk to John Hinckley and they go well let me see and then you'd wait a couple of minutes and they go yeah he wants to talk to you and uh, we'd get on the phone with John Hinckley he goes I have your first album. Yeah, you know, I remember saying to him, you know, we saw we read this poem you wrote called I Desire. And uh we were wondering if you would mind if we use those as lyrics for a Devo song. He goes, Hmm, let me hear it, okay? And so we said, Yeah, before we do anything, we'll let you hear it. And so we wrote the song called I Desire with John Hinckley Jr. lyrics. Of course, if you're trying to impress your record company, that's <laughs> don't, don't do, do that. Don't do that. Yeah, don't yeah. don't write a song with the <laughs> would be presidential assassin. <laughs> yeah, it was not. He was not a favorite in the country at the time. But the but the his poems were so good. His poetry was so good. I love it. I, I wanted to ask you something because I, I I got to take photos of you one time, maybe ten years ago for something. Oh, or other. Uh, I was pole dancing at the time yes. to make some extra money. Yeah. Yes, it was there. It was that time, and you yeah. were talking to somebody, and I long felt I overheard that. Joni Mitchell attacked you in a stairwell one time. Mm. I didn't know if I heard this right or. Well, she didn't attack me, but what happened was is she had the same manager as Neil Young. And uh, we did our second album and um, I, I was up at his office. It's just down the street here. But um, she's like, hey, are you that guy from Devo? I go, I'm that guy from Devo. <laughs> and she goes, I'm going to be in a movie. And uh, they want me to hold a ghetto blaster on my shoulder and put a song on on the ghetto blaster. And I was like, okay. And she goes, I want to put your song on it, Swelling Itching Brain. And I'm like, 
wow, great. Why would you pick Swelling? Because I'm thinking, that's such a radical song. You know, <laughs> On that album, it's like the most radical song. I go, why would you pick Swelling and She Brain? She, and she went, because it's the most obnoxious, horrible, irritating song I've ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> I said, well, be my guest. <laughs> Blast it away. It was at the end of it? That was... That was it. And then she walked away. Um, the only other thing that happened after that is her manager, who was who was at Neil's at that time, he stayed managing with her years later after uh, after Ron and Elliot split ways. He was still working with her. And he called me up once and said, hey, this is like in the last 10 years even. I don't remember what year, maybe eight years ago. And he said, hey, Joni wants to get into uh, film scoring. Says, do you have any? Do you know anything I should tell her? I go, you know what? You tell Joni if she wants to come over to my green building, come over to the studio. I would love to show her while I'm working on something. And and if she has a film she wants to work on, I will help walk her through it. I'll show her, you know, how to do it and make it easy for. Her. And she was like, what? The swelling itching brain guy? No way! I'm not doing that. And it was like, um. So we never. She never uh, let go of disliking. Is it a true disdain, or is it like she joking? Do you know? Is it maybe it's better not to know? Maybe it's, who knows? She's a little bit eccentric. You know, she was. People would tell you that in some situations she was probably very hard to work with. She's super talented. I mean, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, that goes yeah. without saying. But yeah, do you still talk to Neil ever? Or you got like or the band and Neil? Is any actually? There's a chance. He might get interviewed for a Devo documentary to see what he thought about Devo because that could have because it could be funny because because I don't know if we were exactly what he thought we were but he was he was pretty interesting you know I think back about it that he was doing hey hey my my and then he gets Devo to come do it and then but we're doing it in a recording studio in San Francisco and all the band has like Oompa Loompa pinhead hats on. And Boogie Boy singing it, sitting, sitting in a diaper uh, with a Minimoog on my lap, singing. Um, and I changed the words to, instead of Johnny Rotten, I said Johnny the Spud or something. But, but um, he crashed my playpen. He, he destroyed my playpen that I used to take on stage with me because he, he was playing solos and he just smashed. He just started falling on it and smashing it. And I couldn't see very well because I had a latex mask on, but I'm like looking at him going, wow, that's kind of crazy. He's like, he's kind of getting pretty punk for uh, Grandpa Granola, which is what Jerry used to call him. Grandpa Granola. Yeah, it's an intense performance of the song in the the movie. It's super intense. Well, what's funny, I'll tell you something funny about it. To pay for our first film, Jerry and I started a company called Unit Services in in downtown Akron. and, And it was a graphic design shop. And... Mostly what we did is we, we talked people and letting us do the signs for their shops in this place because there were like 30 other c- companies coming in and they, we'd, we'd design signs for them. And, but we got this one job for a muffler company, uh, Midas Muffler, and we came up with the logo Rust Never Sleeps. And they loved it. <laughs> and they wanted T-shirts. So, so they wanted 100 T-shirts and I, I bought like 101, just enough so we'd have one that we could do a sample on. And uh, so I'm in the basement of, of where I lived, and I'm, I'm getting ready to print. I go, uh, okay, I tried it on the one extra shirt, and it was wrinkly looking. I went, oh, no. So I changed the ink a little bit and uh, cleaned the screen. And then 
I was looking for that. So I found a couple of my T-shirts and a towel, and I started printing on them. And then I, I printed on, I had a pair of underpants, and I just printed it on the, the seat of the underpants, Russ Never Sleeps. And so that was the underpants Boogie Boy was wearing in the playpen uh, when, we, when we were recording together. Uh, if Boogie Boy would have flipped over, you would have read it, but he he never flipped over in, in the movie. But um, he called me up a few weeks later and he said, hey, Mark, that Russ never sleeps. Do you mind if I use that for the title of my next film? I go, no, no, that'd be great. And so that's how, so then he made a film called Russ Never Sleeps based on a Midas muffler gig that helped pay for the first Devo film. Yeah, the connections between you guys are are interesting, between the Kent State connection and him writing Ohio and, and then giving him Russ Never Sleeps as the title. <laughs> it's like, damn. You Isn't know, that funny? Well, just, he was, yeah, bizarre. he was an interesting guy. He was a much more interesting guy than, than we gave him credit for at the time. We were kind of punky assholes. What can I say? R- real quick, I wanted to ask you about Robert Margalef, who, yeah. as someone who is very into synthesizers, how was he as a person who, I mean, it seems to be, I mean, the the Tonto machine and I mean, what a kind of bizarre, strange guy and doing all this classic records yeah. with Stevie and then working yeah. with you guys. To me, he was the most, of all the, of all the producer, outside producers that we used uh, to work on Devo records, he was the, um, the most successful and the smartest and uh, taught me more than any of the other producers did and yeah the fact that he went between like um stevie wonder and the original neo-tombral orchestra tonto you know it's yeah. like that's why we asked him to work with us in the first place because we were don't laugh but we thought freedom of choice was f- funky devo we thought that was a, <laughs> we thought okay what if devo did funk what would it sound like and that's what we came up with which wasn't I mean, I can't say it's a very funky album, but you know, it was it was our attempt at it, and so we wanted a, a guy who was familiar with funk, but also familiar with electronics, and he he was the perfect guy, and and I still stay in touch with him. He's he's really smart. He's really he's really articulate still, and uh, and uh, somebody's looking for a great producer. He's a he's a good guy to use. Is, is he still experimenting with stuff and with yeah. sounds and uh, yeah. mostly yeah. And lately it's been um, headphones where you feel like you're in Atmos. Mm. It's, like a, it's like an alternate to, to the Atmos system, but a headphone version of it. And, and uh, he can spread sounds all, you know, really wide when you're in these headphones. That, that's the last like thing I remember. Spatial audio stuff. Yeah. yeah, spatial audio. Yeah, I, I guess that's what it's called. Um, and that's the last thing I, uh, I remember him calling me about being really enthusiastic about. I was listening because Robbie Robertson died recently. And so I, yeah. I listened to the first couple of band records front to back for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. And the narrative on the band was that like they made everyone want to go back to like roots music, essentially, you know, like strip mm-hmm. it all back. But because of Garth Hudson, the organist, there was always really weird sounds you would never hear in like a country record or like a, yeah. an Americana record. And, and I just I never picked up on that when I used to listen to them. I didn't know if you listened to them and, you know. Yeah, that was the part know. that I picked up on. I, I liked all the eccentricity. I was not into country. Country, when I was in high school, was the music I got my ass. That was the soundtrack to me getting my ass kicked by by kids that wanted me to be more like them or something or to, yeah. like, or to be less of a weirdo. So I never was a fan of country. And 
but I liked those albums, and I loved some of the lyrics, like, take a load off, granny. That's To me, that was just kind of absurdly hilarious, uh, you know, some of that stuff. And I liked Big Pink. I thought that was a good... Big Pink was a cool record. Yeah. yeah. Any other, like, early, like, keyboard or synth inspirations? Like I loved... Uh, Walter Carlos's uh, uh, Clockwork Orange soundtrack. I thought that oh, was cool. incredibly genius. And that probably helped make me even more aware of soundtracks then, you know, because that was, that music was, uh, it was Beethoven mostly, but it was like, um, it sounded so good. And nobody's ever used a vocorder again the way he did it in, in that movie. I, I would defy you to find something that sounds like that. It's, it's so incredible. And then, uh, I think for me, I remember listening to a Roxy Music album, the first, I think it was the first one, and the lyrics were good on everything back then. Uh, I'm less of a fan of when it turned into Avalon. Yeah, God, yeah. I, I loved all the I loved all the early stuff like yeah. um, Inflatable Dolly, you know, stuff yeah. like that was to me yeah. was like was like creepy and cool. But uh I was listening to the song. It was like a throwaway song on Roxy Music album called "Editions of You," and mm-hmm. and so there's a saxophone takes a solo and goes, and then then uh, the guitar player gets a solo, and then Eno gets a solo. And I didn't know who Eno was, and I hear this, he did this solo that I went. That's the best electronic music synth solo I've ever heard in a, a rock and roll song or a pop song. Yeah. I thought that was incredible. It made me want to meet him. It made me want to see see what he used. It made me want to talk to him. Uh, and that's when I just was, I was, you know, when people asked me who I wanted to have produce uh, Devo, I said, Brian Eno's first choice. And so that's how that happened. But his, I just thought he was like, the early pioneer that did it. I think that song is like if you were looking for a, for electronic pop, new wave punk or whatever that music was. I don't even know. He, yeah, I don't know how to classify it. Yeah. I know. His solo was like very, it was just totally abstract. That's what was, and that was so great about it. And it was abstract with electronics. And um, as much as I thought Satisfaction was the epicenter of rock and roll, is the best song ever. Matter of fact, that's why we we did our version of it because it was ten years later, and I thought, well, it's about time to to reinterpret and update that song, you know, to to match what's going on now. And I mean, Bob Casale actually was the uh, started playing that riff out of nowhere, and within an hour, we'd put the song together, and then I was singing on it, Satisfaction. But I had always I thought Satisfaction was perfect because I thought, well, it's ten years, it's time to reinterpret or what pop music is was was jerry into your uh, you know because early on i mean jerry listening to the sounds could be very bluesy and very i mean if i had like a almost like a garage rocky thing did was he into your experimenting with sounds and i think maybe less than i was into the blues thing i loved having a blues a blues progression underneath things i was writing because it gave me a chance to do really abstract things with great rhythms to it, you know, and yeah. and uh, I could take really abstract sounds and, you know, mortar blasts, ray guns. I could put like ray gun sounds, you know, like in uh, Space Girls, for instance. Yeah. And uh, these warbly sounds. Brrr, 
And I, you know, so what he was doing kind of worked with that pretty good. Like auto mow down, you know, it would be a cool example. And then example the synth that. was like, yeah. that's auto mow down's a good example of like, um, that's the Sun Ra approach because that was. It was like yeah. it was like playing it like so that they were um so that they were noises and they yeah. were like more percussive percussion with yeah. a little bit of with a little bit of you know like a, a melody and you know in the sound you know because you'd hear notes in it but they'd be you know like in an auto down they were kind of like car horns they sounded like three <laughs> or four it sounded like three or four car horns hitting at the same time in different pitches. That's a song I return to a lot. That's such a cool it's so good. That's a good song. And that has and that has Jerry's rhythm, his bass yeah. rhythm going on in it. Yeah. yeah. I love that song. I love that song too. Yeah, that's an incredible one. Do you have an opinion on the sort of progression of electronics in music, the way it's evolved over time? Yeah, I think uh pop music is on some levels stupid. You know, no matter what era you're talking about, even the stuff I liked, there was a stupid side to a lot of it. But the thing about pop music is pop music, it's important to kids that are that are like just coming of an age, whatever age that is, if it's 11 or if it's 19 or anything, where they go, the world is insane. Mm. Nothing makes sense to me. Who am I? Where am I? And then they, you find... Something like, and for some people, it's Taylor Swift. You know, they find it in Taylor Swift. Some people, it was the Beatles, and some people, it's uh, it's Neil Young or it's Jimi Hendrix. But this music is like where you go and you go, ah, oh, I feel this reminds me of yeah. when I needed a refuge. You know, it's like for Devo, it's like you know, there was a time where I was kind of like, well, I don't like playing the same songs. You know, these are songs I wrote when I was 25. That's like 50 years, almost 50 years ago now. Why don't people want to hear the new stuff? But, you know, the reality is, if the ghost of David Bowie came up to me tonight and went, ooh, Mark, I'm going to do a concert for you and you only. It's going to be a brand new album. Nobody's ever heard these songs. It's all about everything that's going on in the world now. Donald Trump, you know, uh, Joe Biden, uh, uh, Ukraine, or it's going to be Spiders of Mars, the live show that blew your mind. You're going to see that exact, absolute exact same show, and you can sit anywhere in the audience you want. I go, I'll take Spiders of Mars, and you can save your brand new stuff for somebody else, you know. And and so I understand it when kids come up and go, you know, people picked on me and they called me Devo when I was in high school, but I loved your music and uh, I love that stuff now. And uh, what does, you know, what does uh, Blockhead mean to you or something like that, you know, or or what does gut feeling mean? And you, instead of going, I wrote that when I was 25, I don't fucking remember, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you go. Well, you know, you you talk to them about it, and then in some instances, do you also just hate to try to remember what your access twenty five year old Mark emotions like? It seems like a lot of work to try to go back and rehash shit and pinpoint the. Well, you know what? We did choose a weird life for ourselves, you know, because because that's what I'm going to be doing, you know, until we end up stop touring. You know, it's like we're gonna. The part we will play new songs and people will be polite and sit through them, and then uh, <laughs> and then they'll get to the stuff that that they wanted to hear. Yeah. You know, you'll 
you'll play uncontrollable urge or you'll play satisfaction and they're they'll lose their minds yeah. you know and i like that that's what you know and so for me it's like i write a lot of music for myself that nobody ever hears sometimes i put it out like i put out one set of six um 45s called mutant flora and that was music that i'd written for taika watiti what was the name of that movie thor ragnarok you know stuff like that or then i did a a a box i did a set called the most powerful healing music in the entire world and it was like i'd be working on a wes anderson film or or something lego or something and i my head would start you know getting tightened and i'd just go into the lunchroom here that's over over there about 30 feet and i had a home organ from the 80s set up there and i would just do stream of consciousness uh, easy listening home organ music and and i did a um a six album set of it. I might re-release that. You got to put out like a library of just stuff, like a online library, accessible, whatever, you know? You know, I'm thinking, I'm totally thinking that um, I'm, I'm putting out a set of books and the first one's coming out in December. Uh, and um, the next one though, it's going to be about 1600 pages. It's going to be super fat and it's going to be big pages and it's all art. And, uh, I'm going to put QR codes in it, and where I could put music you could listen to while you're while you're looking through the book, and videos and stuff like that. Well, I look forward to seeing the books. That's cool, man. December. Well, I okay. can't wait to see that. And um, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Thanks to Mark Mothersbaugh for sharing some of those incredible stories. You can hear our favorite songs from Devo and Mark's solo career on a playlist at BrokenRecordPodcast.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash BrokenRecordPodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at BrokenRecord. Broken Record is produced with help from Mia Rose and Eric Sandler. Our show is engineered by Echo Mountain. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like this show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect 
with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.